Praise the Lord and welcome to online Bible study. I'm excited to be with you tonight. Glad to be in the house of God. We've got some people in the house with us here tonight. If you ever think you want to come out, come on out live to Bible study. Uh, we're excited to be here on Thursday night. All right, praise the Lord. We're going to go ahead and we have been studying the book of Philippians and we're going to continue with that study tonight. And we should be in Philippians chapter 2. My intention is to deal with verses 1 through 13 tonight. So before we do that, we're going to see if we can pray and then uh, proceed into our Bible study. So uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus, we just thank you once again for the opportunity to come together as the family of God to study your word. We pray and ask tonight that your Holy Spirit would lead us and guide us into your truth. And that, Father, you would continue to open the word of God to us that we might learn more of you, that we might be able to walk worthy of the vocation we have been called. Father, we ask it even now in Jesus' name, amen. All right, praise the Lord. Okay, we have been doing uh, the book of Philippians. We had an, an outline that uh, we kind of walked through and told you kind of what would be uh, there. Let's see, look... Um, there we are. We saw then uh, the salutation that we've already dealt with, Paul's prayers, uh, his praise for the Philippians, uh, the promise that Paul had concerning his confidence in Christ and his work, and then the prayer overall for the Philippians. And then uh, we move from there to we said that the books, um, the biography, if you will, of the book, a was Paul's success that he was experiencing even in jail, um, the success in Jesus that Paul said he desired and was determined to glorify Christ. And then we looked at what we said was the body of the letter we would begin dealing with, and we saw, uh, we said from 127 through 218, uh, somewhere in there, the excellence in conduct the priority of suffering, the priority of submitting to others, examples of good conduct, which we'll deal with later than the examples of commitment and on. So tonight, we are going to be in chapter two, and we're going to try and see if we can deal with, um, beginning at verse one through 13, if you put it up there for us so they can see it out there, uh, and we're going to do one through 13 tonight. All right, so here we go. If if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let, this mind. let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. Let me get to my Bible. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name, which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. All right. So let's see if we can kind of walk our way through um, these verses. Now, what we see Paul doing as he opens up chapter 2 is really what I find is the greatest essence of the Christian experience and knowledge. Many times people will, uh, they're constantly challenging whether or not Jesus himself is God uh, or whether Jesus, because the Bible teaches that there's only one God, that if Jesus truly is God, then he would have to be God in, when they refer to God in three modes, um, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, or three modes, they call it. And that's something we don't teach. We don't believe it. It's kind of, it's really in line with something called oneness, uh, modalism. And we don't teach that. Right? We don't teach that Jesus is the Father, Jesus is the Son, Jesus is the Holy Spirit, God just showing up three different ways. Um, Jesus is exactly who he declared himself to be, that although he was God, he was also very much man. Um, we do not have the language or the ability to explain it. Many times people say, well, hey, can you explain it? All we can do is take the Bible at what it says, okay? So the, in Colossians, when we looked at Colossians, uh, we saw in Colossians when we were dealing with that, that, the Bible says that all things were created by him. Uh, we see that the Bible tells us in the book of John that in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. So Paul then begins to kind of lay out for us this conduct we talked about as believers. And we said that if we, if we understood it and we lived this way and asked the Holy Spirit to help us to experience Christ this way, uh, our churches should be filled with much less uh, drama and a lot more fulfillment in a family type of environment, irrespective of how large it might even be, uh, because what he basically does is lays out for us the way we should do it. If you look at verse 1, he says, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. So Paul then lays it out. He says that, look, and, and it's really kind of a lot of hyperbole, if you want to say that in the first verse. When he keeps saying, if there's, if there's any consolation, if there's any comfort, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, he, all of this we know is true. Paul is saying that in Christ we have consolation, that we know that there is comfort in love, there is fellowship with the Spirit, and there is mercy with God. He says, because of all of this, he says, I need you all to fulfill my joy. Because what he was hearing is that there was a lot of drama going on in the church. And a lot of different problems, people debating and arguing with one another about different things. Some people debating whether or not Jesus was God or not God uh, and all of this. And Paul says, look, what I want you all to do is I need you to be like-minded. I need you to be on one accord. And I need you to be of one mind. So if, if you focus your attention on Christ and realize when Paul said my desire is that we see Christ and him crucified. That, that is, Paul said, that is my final objective in everything, Christ and him crucified. So if everybody would, would just back up for a minute and always put themselves in the final moments of their life, and that is that eventually we all die and we're all going to have to go to see God and we're all going to be out of here. 
So, so what is the major objective? The major objective is to glorify Christ. So he explains to us and says then that he wants everybody. See, if everybody would get on that mindset, there's really no way that you should have all of the trouble and problems and fights and drama and everything that goes on in the congregation or amongst the people of God. That just shouldn't be happening. Paul's like, look, we are supposed to be an example of the love of God, and it ought to be able to happen. So then in verse 3, he lays into them a little bit more to get it, to get it further understood. If we understand this, then we would realize that no matter what our service is in the church or outside of the church, there is a reason that we ought to be pursuing. Like today to me, if you listen to a lot of people who start talking about purpose and all this stuff, and I'm trying to find my purpose and what God wants me to do, most of it is grounded really in vanity. You know, I believe I'm here for a purpose, you know, that God put me here for a purpose. Like, you know, he just selected you out and, you know, and put you here. And if you don't get to do your thing, oh, my God, you know, what's the world going to do, right? Well, if you read verse 3, you see then that this takes away that whole concept. He says, let nothing, and nothing means nothing, no thing, let no thing be done through strife or vainglory. So let's stop right there. So in other words, he says absolutely nothing that you do ought to be done out of strife. You know, sometimes people will do things, um, they're going to show somebody, you know, I'll show you, you know, or whatever. And, or they're doing things not because they feel led by God to do them, but because they're doing them either out of strife or, as Paul said, vainglory. You know, they, they don't recognize that they are really putting themselves in front of uh, the church, of God. They're putting themselves in front of Christ and what it is that God, we're supposed to be trying to exalt Jesus and not ourselves. And if we would do that and understand that what we're doing, he says, nothing that we do should be done out of strife or vainglory. So in other words, when I put together a sermon, you know, I shouldn't be putting together my sermon with the hopes to say, oh yeah, I'm going to knock it out of the park today. Boy, they're going to think this was great. You know, instead of, I, I need to focus so that what I do brings glory to Jesus, that somehow what I'm doing draws attention to Christ and not myself, that I should be drawing attention away and to the cross. Because Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. So we then in, he's been crucified, but then in us lifting him up, even in what we preach, what we teach, what we do, that then can draw people to Christ. But he says then, so let nothing be done out of strife or vainglory. He says then, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Stop. Okay. Think about it. You can see why there's a lot of trouble that goes on, right, with people, right? You know, the bottom line is that this is really asking us to take all of the modern uh, psychology and all of the things that we hear and put it aside. You know, most of what you read, hey, you know, you... You're great, and you're wonderful, and, and you, you've got a world to take over, you know, and all these things that we're always saying to ourselves about ourselves and making sure that nobody's going to put me down and don't let anybody this, and, you know, and we concentrate too much on really what amounts to self. And the Bible tells us here, in lowliness of mind, in other words, take, bring your mind down a little bit, humble yourself, let each esteem other better than themselves. So in other words, he's saying, when I'm looking at everyone, dealing with everyone, I have to see them as being better than me. That's how I look at it. You know, you're, you know I, I don't exalt myself above somebody else. Now, this is not about self-deprecation. We're not talking about, you know, 
you know, flag, flagellating yourself and beating yourself and, oh, I'm nobody and everybody else is so great. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is an estimation of oneself where you don't put yourself above everybody else in everything. You know, because God has your back no matter what, okay? He's already, the Bible says that if, the, if you're the lowly, God will come near to, draw near to him, he'll draw near to you. Humble yourself, God will draw near to you. So you don't have to worry about where God is. God is always on your side if you will walk in humbleness and lowliness of mind. You don't have to worry about exalting yourself. God's going to do that. The Bible says that if a person has a gift, it'll bring them before great men. Whatever it is that you're doing, a place will be found. But if you're striving and, and, and having strife and you're pushing for your own, you're going to always be kind of rubbing up against something that's going to be creating a bunch of problems and havoc within the body of Christ and, or wherever you may find yourself. And God is like, uh, Paul's telling us, don't do it that way. He's saying, what I need you to do in every situation, put other people above yourself. Just think of it that way. And if you do that, God's going to be with you all the time, and there's no way you can lose if God's with you. Yeah, but you got to, by faith, bring this in and believe it. Now, then he says this. In the next verse, you see that he's bringing it out a little further. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. So once again, you know, the idea is not about looking after my own stuff, but I ought to be trying to look after other people's things. Uh, am I making sure that other people's needs are being met? versus my own. You know, Jesus, that's why Jesus said, I am here amongst you all that even though I am the master, I'm here amongst you as a servant. I'm serving. And, and if we really are filled with the Holy Spirit, we really have God's um, favor on our lives, then no matter how much we are pursuing and attempting to put others before ourselves, God is always taking care of our situation. We don't have to worry about it. He's going to have our back because we're about God's business. So when you're about God's business, he's going to take care of yours. But if you're always minding your own business, and that's all you're doing is taking care of your own business, then you're going to be stuck with doing that yourself instead of realizing what God is trying to get done here. He's trying to get people, and you can see, if, if you, you import this into a marriage, you see the same, um, this is why God commands us to marry like-minded people, believers. If you bring this into the marriage, there's really no way all the craziness can go on that always goes on. Because at some point, everyone's going to have to acknowledge and admit, okay, the truth of the matter is, what I just did, I just did it out of strife, or what I just did, I did out of vainglory, or what I just did, I wasn't looking after your things, I was looking after mine. You know, and, and, and the bottom line is that most of us, and it's understood, most people are concerned about being taken advantage of and people unfairly treating them and, and they being used by other people. And then before you know it, uh, my whole life's gone away and I've dedicated all to somebody who didn't care or whatever. When the reality is that God is like, look, you cannot lose when you are doing something because you're doing it for the glory of God and you're doing it because the word says do it. Now, if you're doing it for some other reason, then that, that's a different issue. But if you're doing it because the word tells you to do it, then God says you don't lose your reward. He even said in one place that if, you know, a, uh, you gave somebody a cold cup of water in the name of Christ, you wouldn't lose your reward. So God is concerned about us following this because this is what leads to, at least within the uh, environment we currently find ourselves in, this human condition, that this is the only way that the peace of God can manifest itself in the human 
species, if you will. Because for the most part, look at the families, look at all the domestic violence that goes on nowadays and all of the fighting and all of the murder and killing, and there's people inside their own families. And so you find that much of the, the hatred and the strife and the fighting is all tied to some selfishness that's going on within the minds of these people that can eventually elevate itself um, into harm and violence. And this is why God is like, look, that's not how we do Christ. That's not how we walk. Um, we have to walk worthy of the vocation we've been called. We saw that in Ephesians. So now he tells us that we need to focus on other people's things. Then he says in verse 5, he, he keeps grinding it down. Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. So now he's, he focuses us and says, now I'm going to help you understand a little bit better what this ought to look like. The mind that you ought to have. I want you to be mindful of this. I want this presence of mind, this thought process, this to, to grasp you. Now, What's interesting about it, it, the verses that we're about to look at very well demonstrate and give us another answer if people were to say to you, well, Jesus never said he was God, and Jesus never declared himself to be God. So how can y'all say he's God, and you all are making him God, and you serve three gods, and you do all this? And when the reality is, we serve one God in three persons. Now, what people need to understand about this is we have to come to a place that we're willing to acknowledge as humans. We don't understand everything. I mean, we just don't. So to suggest that God cannot be what we're, he says he is is really arrogant on our part. You know, what, what we understand of oneness um, is, is, I think we need to give some thought to it, you know, because what we think of as oneness may not be correct from God's perspective of what oneness is. So just like when the Bible talks about a husband and a wife become one flesh, well, literally you can see every husband and wife walking around in two bodies. So God is talking about something when he's referring to this concept of one flesh. There's something about this oneness, this unity. So the Bible makes it clear. This is a statement. This here makes it clear to us that Jesus was God, except he did not grasp after it. Now, all you got to do is go back and look at some of the statements that Jesus made. Now, I'm not going to go back to those. You can kind of research them in your time if you want to. But all you got to do is look at some of the statements Jesus made. I will make them at times when I'm talking in other scriptures or other sermons. Just think about these for a moment. I'm just going to call a few off. Now, at one point, Jesus said to someone, you believe in God? Believe also in me. Okay, who does that? I mean, how are you going to equate yourself with God? You believe in God? Believe in me. That would be like if I said that to somebody. You believe in God? Believe in me. they say, you crazy. God... It's a whole nother level. It's a whole nother concept of what we're talking about. We're talking about the creator, the ultimate one who created all things, who can make my life go, not go, work, not work. God, <clears throat> the one who can, can, can call things that be not as though they were, the one who created the heavens, the sun, the moon, everything. So Jesus says, you know, you believe in God? Hey, believe in me. Um, okay, I see, to put the scripture up, well, we'll just read it. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, 
Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Who says that? See, this is what I'm saying to people. I don't get it, but you know, the devil always messing with people here. Think about what Jesus said. I said, as Christians, we either have to make a decision. Jesus was crazy or he was God. Okay? Jesus said, I am going. I'm about to leave and I'm going to go prepare a place for you. Okay. And I'm coming back to receive you to myself. That's what he said. Now, in another place, he said, I have to go. Because if I don't go, then the comforter can't come. I'm going to send him back to you, the Holy Spirit, who will lead you and guide you into all truth. He says, but I have to leave. I can't stay. He says, I know your, your heart is sorrowful because I said I'm leaving. He said, but I got to go. He said, but I'm going to send back the comforter. Okay, so now Jesus is saying, claiming that, now see, Confucius, none of these people ever did this. Jesus is the only religious teacher ever in history to make these kind of statements. So he's either crazy or he's who he said he is. There ain't nothing in between. I don't know why people are saying, well, you know, I mean, I believe Jesus. I believe in him. I just don't think he was God. You crazy then because it doesn't make any sense. Listen to what he said. I'm going to go. Look at what he says. Here it is. They found that verse again. Wow, they're getting at it back there. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. The truth. I ain't lying. It is necessary, expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. So Jesus is saying, look, I'm leaving. And he calls depart like Paul did. I'm going to depart. He finna die. But it's necessary for me to depart and leave. But he ain't dying and not dead. He's leaving so he can go and send the spirit back. Okay. Yeah. That's what you're going to do, huh, Jesus? You're going to die and go up there, and then you're going to send the Holy Spirit to us to comfort us. Okay. I got it. All right. In one place he said, I and the Father are one. Philip said, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. And Jesus said, Philip, how long have I got to be with you that you don't know, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Who says that? So he's basically saying, if you've seen me, you've seen God. Wow. Okay. All right. In another place, Jesus said, all power in heaven and earth has been given to me. Me. He says, all power in heaven and earth, all authority, all power in heaven and earth has been given unto me. He said, therefore, go into the world and preach the gospel. Now, this is after he died. See, before he died, Satan had a lot of power down here, right? In another place, Jesus said, I have the keys of death, hell, and the grave. Wow. Death, hell, and the grave. Jesus said he got all the keys. Who says that? Jesus said, I have all the keys to death, hell, and the grave. Okay. Jesus said in another place, I know I'm moving fast, y'all, but I just need to throw these out there. In another place, Jesus said, one day, everyone will hear the voice of the Son of Man and will rise from the dead, either to eternal, uh, 
life or eternal damnation. So he says everyone in the grave is going to hear his voice saying, rise. Jesus said, the Father has committed all judgment to me. To me, 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 me. I'm judging. He said in one place he was going to be sitting on a throne judging all the tribes of Israel and the world. Him. Okay. Who does that? All right. Now let's go back. Let's look at Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. It says, who being in the form of God, because he was, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So in other words, Jesus, before he came here, he tells us, he said, I was, he says in one place, Father, give me back the glory I had with you from the foundation of the world. I've come here and I've told these men what you had me to tell them. They were yours and you gave them to me. And I have kept them so that none of them have been lost except for the son of perdition, which was Judas. So he says, now restore back to me the glory I had with you from the foundation of the world. Okay? So he's now telling God this is what he wants to do. So being in the form of God, he was God. He was there. We don't know what that looks like. We don't understand it, and it don't matter. If God said it, that's the end of it. Jesus said he was with the Father from the beginning. I have to just believe it and accept it. Well, what were you like? We know you weren't no baby. We know you weren't a man because you didn't become a man until you came here. So what were you? I don't know. Who knows? We don't know. All we know was in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word became flesh. So that same Word that became flesh is Jesus. And that same Word was with God. How was it with God? I don't know, but it was. And the Bible tells us the Word is separate from God. God honors His Word above His name. So, you know, we don't know how all this fits together, but we know that this Jesus, who now is here, was in the form of God. So he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. This is why he kept saying things to people about it, because it wasn't robbery. He wasn't taking anything from God. You know, it's like when we get up here and we say, well, I want God to get all the glory. You know, I don't want none of God's glory. You know, people will say that, you know, whether they sing a song, preaching a message, whatever, people patting you on the back, say, oh, no, get a God, glory to God. Jesus can receive glory. Jesus can receive worship because he is God. Matter of fact, God said in, I think it's Psalm 2, kiss the son lest the father be angry. Yeah, you know, kiss the son because why? He is the one that God has sent, his only begotten son. And, and, the, and what makes it so dynamic for God is what we're about to deal with in a moment. But the Bible says then that um, he didn't think it robbery to be equal with God. But and, and this is why he kept saying things. He was in the form of God. He came down, thought it not right to be equal with God. That's why he kept saying things. I mean, he didn't feel like he was stealing God's glory. He was God. I mean, the Father and I are one. But he would say things like this. I have to go back to my Father. My Father is greater than I. And people have taken these verses to say, see, if he's God, how can God be greater than him? Okay, no different than if I was in the army and I had a general and I'm a sergeant. Well, my sergeant, my general is greater than me. But we're both men. We have the same essence. We're, the, we're humans. We're both males. We have, I could even be stronger than he is. Doesn't matter because the truth is his rank 
is higher than mine in the situation we're in. And here, father always outranks son. Even though we're of the same essence, we're both God. We're all one. We're the same. It's the same, just like humans. If you see it, when a man has a kid, the kid eventually grows up. And even though the kid becomes a man or a woman, they still are expected to what? Respect their parent, even though they're of the same essence. I'm a man just like you a man, your kid might say. And you say, you ain't that much a man normally. But the point is that what? They really are their man. I mean, you know, they, they have blood, fingers, everything like you're their man. But the rank, so when Jesus said, my father is greater than I, he was speaking in terms of some kind of ranking and hierarchy that the Godhead has where the father sits, there's the son and the Holy Spirit. How that all works, Jesus respected his father in such a way that he says, my father is greater than I. And not to suggest that his father was more God than him. You know, but, but we got to stop letting people take us down with these things. The Bible is clear in Philippians. It's telling us that although he was in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, this is what he did in verse 7. But he made himself of no reputation. We'll stop right there. So in other words, even though Jesus was in the form of God before he came, thought it not robbery to be equal with God when he got here, he made himself of no reputation. Instead of saying, okay, let me see what I need to do while I'm here so that I can get y'all's attention. Maybe I need to be a high priest. Maybe I need to be a king. Maybe I need to be, you know, something famous to get y'all's attention. Instead, he purposely made himself of no reputation. Born in a manger. Dad was a carpenter spent his life doing carpentry, and then at some point got a bunch of fishermen and tax collectors and other people to be his disciples. So instead of going to the hierarchy, the high people and all that, he, he did everything he could to humble himself down to the point of basically where he took away all of his ability to, if you will, brag about being God and using it like most people will say. If you want to get people's attention, you got to do things a certain way. If you want to get their attention, you got to get a rep and all that. Everything's about reputation amongst men. And Jesus made himself of no reputation, even though what? He had every right to do it. He was in the form of God, thought it not right to be equal with God, but he chose to make himself of no reputation. Think about a man who can say, this is why they kept saying, what manner of man is this? that the wind and the seas obey him. Okay, you know, I heard somebody say something foolish one day. They said, well, you know, Jesus came as a man. He stripped himself of all his God abilities, which is not right the way they said that. I understood the point they were trying to make, but they said he did it this way so we could see um, what a regular man could do if he had the Holy Ghost. Well, all I can say is ain't nobody got the Holy Ghost, obviously, because ain't nobody I know around here telling the wind what to do or the ways or anything else. I don't see anybody walking on water, okay? I mean, so these things, although I believe that, yes, in the midst of whatever's going on, God through his spirit can help us by faith to do some of these things, that was not why Jesus was doing them just because he was a man and trying to show us something. He was God-man, and he was able to, this is why many times I was saying the other day as I was riding along, why Jesus would say things like, how long do I have to suffer, y'all? I honestly don't think he fully understood. <laughs> 
could understand or comprehend why we were so dense. You know, I mean, we, we're looking. One time he said to them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they reasoned amongst themselves. The scripture says, is it because we don't have no bread? And Jesus said, because he perceived their thoughts, Jesus said, why are you reasoning amongst yourselves that it's because you don't have no bread? He said, don't you remember when we fed the 5,000? He said, how many baskets did y'all take up? And they told him, how about when we fed the 7,000? How many baskets did y'all take up? I mean, literally, the man took five loaves and two fish and fed thousands of people. And, and, and I'm saying that uh, I don't know why nobody would think he were God. I mean, you know, if you think about it, do we believe these things? So if he fed thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people, see, I just don't think most people really believe this. I mean, they, they read it, but I don't think they believe it. Because if they believed it, then they would say, okay, you know what? Ain't nothing God can't do. Nothing God can't do. Whatever I need, he can get it for me. If he ain't getting it for me, obviously I don't need it. That, because if Jesus said, make them sit down, what do we have? Well, you got but five loaves and two fish, but what is this amongst so many? Give it to me. The Lord took it and started breaking it, blessed it and started breaking it, and fed thousands of people. And then they had leftovers, 12 baskets of leftovers. Okay. So verse 8, and being found in a fashion as a man, look at what it says. Well, let me go back to verse 7. He made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. Who would do that? And was made in the likeness of men. Then in verse 8, and being found in fashion as a man. So now that he's a man, he humbles himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now stop. This is the essence of the whole Christian message. And this is what Paul means when he says, I have strived to know nothing amongst you but Christ and him crucified. Okay? See, in other words... If we reach a place when you read the Old Testament and you look at it and say you look at the life of Joseph and all of a sudden you see that Joseph ends up becoming the second in command in Egypt. And it all happens not because Joseph had a plan, not because Joseph was running around thinking that, you know, I got a purpose. None of this. God took him through all kind of trouble and drama. His brothers hated him, sold him into slavery. Uh, Potiphar's wife accused him of being a rapist. He went back to prison again. He got forgot about in prison. All kind of things went on in this man's life until God's time. The Bible says in one place, uh, the word, until Joseph's um, uh, time came, the word of the Lord tried him. Okay? So in other words, whatever he was knowing that God was going to do in his life just kept trying him and trying him because everything that was going on in his life said no. You know, his brother sold him into slavery. He gets into a job where he's doing pretty good in Potiphar's house. The woman chases him every day till he finally gets away. She accuses him of rape. He goes back to prison. Uh, he thinks he's going to get out. He gets forgotten again. Eventually, he comes out of prison, and finally, he's exalted to second in command in Egypt. But it's exactly the same thing when you look at how God can manage a person. I, I want you to just think about that because it's important, all right, that we slow down here. If you look at what happened in Joseph's life, when it was all over, Joseph became the second in command in Egypt without a plan, without a vision, 
None of all the stuff that people worry about. He was just trying to do the will of God, trying to do the will of God. God showed him a dream. He told his brothers. The next thing you know, he was catching it. But the whole time he was trying his best because God already had something he was going to do with Joseph. And that was it. Now, because Jesus is go- sits on the throne, ultimate throne of glory, all power being given to him. Look at what, remember what happened with Adam and Eve. God told them what? Don't eat from these trees. And they disobey God, right? So the issue is about obedience. This is why God said to Saul, Samuel told him, obedience is better than sacrifice. See, a lot of times people won't do everything. They'll do all kind of stuff. They'll sacrifice all kind of things. They just won't die. You know, in other words, God's like, look, this is what I want you to do. While you're giving me all this other stuff, I don't want all that. I want you to give up. Okay, and that's what the cross is about. See, when you look at the cross, that's why Paul kept saying, I'm trying to get everybody to understand. If you're coming to church so that you can, let's say, for instance, get a good message so you can go out and apply it to your life and prosper. That's the wrong reason. You know, if you're coming to church to get a message so that you can have victory in your life, it's the wrong reason. If you're coming to church to get a message and when it's all over and I don't have a better marriage, wrong reasons. We come so that we can learn to die. It's over. <laughs> I mean, you know, the bottom line is that as believers, we have to come to a place to understand. Just like we're going to physically die, God is saying, if you want the best life that's coming, the one that's coming, you have to die now, be crucified with Christ, rise from the dead, and live out your life now, not I, but Christ, right? And as you live that life out, you gain all these rewards in this place that we don't see right now, but that will come to us. Now, in this realm, you would think that if we pay attention to what's going on, we would see that this makes sense. Right now, today, if you, if, if you save money, you'll have some money. If you save $10 a month, by the end of the year, you would have $120. We see it. You put it in the bank. End of the year, is there. Put $100 in, you have $1,200. That's what, what, how it works. Jesus said, store up rewards in heaven. Now, we see it all around us how it works. Now, store up, you have it. Store up, you have it. Then when we get, people are going to get to heaven, they ain't going to have nothing. And then they're going to be upset. Well, to the extent you could be upset being in heaven. But the point is that you're going to, Jesus said, there are going to be some people that are going to be lose because they have no rewards. They're going to be saved, but there are no rewards. So I don't understand how this works. See, we're always talking about heaven, and we'll say, um, I just want to get to heaven. Oh, I'm just going to be so blessed in heaven. And, 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 but they ignore everything Jesus told us about heaven, everything that Jesus said about rewards, everything Jesus said about don't tell your left hand what your right hand is doing because you already got your reward. Don't, don't, um, don't spend your time uh, trying to gain the whole world and lose your soul, uh, sell your field or buy the field, sell everything you have and buy the field with the precious pearl in it. Everything he's telling us is, y'all, please, don't waste your life on what's happening here. You got to do these things now so when you get here, I'll have rewards for you. And then we're going to get there and everybody's going to be like, what? I, I, they, it ain't going to be done. Or some people may have some, and some will have lots, but it's just going to depend on what people have done. But what we see happening is 
God trying to get us to understand Jesus got the ultimate reward. He is now back in heaven. Not only is he back in his place next to God, but now he rules everything. See, he rules, the Bible says, in heaven, in earth, and everything under the earth. Why? Because he came down from heaven where he was already God, with God. But he came down to heaven, I mean to earth, in the form of a man. And then he humbled himself and took the devil on as a humbled, no reputation man. Then he beat the devil, but how did he beat him? He beat him by humbling himself and being obedient to God unlike Adam was. See, God told Adam, don't do it. Satan tried Jesus in various ways. Bow down and I'll give you everything you see. Turn these stones into bread. Jump off the building. He tried all kinds of things to get Jesus to use his godliness while he was here in an inappropriate way, and Jesus wouldn't do it. And then finally, Jesus had to do the ultimate thing, and that is God saying, you got to die. So think about it. He comes down in the form of a man. He humbles himself. His whole life, all he does is helps people, heals people, does all this stuff, yet he has to still end his life with the ultimate obedience. This is why when people get upset about, you know, because God has it in every, that's why God says the head of the man is, is Christ, the head of the husband is the wife, the family heads the children, like that. Everybody's got to obey somebody. But people don't like the word obey. We don't, you know, we don't, humans don't like obey, boy. They don't like it. And what they don't understand is that's where the key to victory is. Jesus, this look at what it says. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Not just death, the death of the cross. It was a horrible death. It was a gruesome death. He could have escaped, but instead, think about this. Jesus was so willing to obey his father that he, was, he went on through what his father allowed to happen to him. That's why when he was standing in front of Pilate, Pilate said, don't you know I have the power to crucify you or to let you go? Pilate, he said, you don't have any power over me. He said, the only power you got over me, you got it from God. Wow. I mean, you're standing in front of the guy that can crucify you. And when he says, don't you know I can crucify you or let you go? She said, you don't have no power over me. Wow. Wow. With all this going on, with all the threats, with all the stuff, for you to look this man in his face and say that shows you the power that he had, but also his understanding of things. This is why I keep trying to tell people, um, as Christians, the Bible is clear, God controls every aspect of our life. This is why I just still refuse to believe that any Christian, any Christian can just die suddenly or in some type of situation that God is not aware it's happening and he let it happen. He had to let it happen. I mean, otherwise you'd have to say God, God ain't God. So how did it happen? But then everybody keeps ignoring what we do on first Sunday. We keep telling people that this is where we get our strength, health, and long life. God said that, look, I don't want to have to judge you all, but if you force me to, I will. 
I need you to judge yourself. So in other words, in Philippians, he's telling us the pattern he wants us to have. I want you to not be in strife. I don't want you to do things out of vainglory. I want you to be in lowliness of mind. I want you to consider other people before yourself. Now, if you won't do these things sooner or later and you won't judge yourself, God's going to have to judge you because he's, he's our father. So he, it's easier, not easier, he has to judge us now so that we won't get judged later. Yeah, we won't get judged over this. We get judged now. But how do we get judged? The Bible says weakness, sickness, and early death. Some people die because they won't correct themselves. Now, that sounds odd to people, but look at what the Bible tells us. Jesus became obedient unto death. In other words, he was so willing to do what God said that he was willing to die. If that's what it takes. This is why when he went into the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed, the Bible says he prayed three times, brought his disciples with him, and the boys couldn't stay over out. They fell asleep. And Jesus came back and said, could y'all not watch with me for an hour? So he goes back. They fall asleep again. So when Jesus comes back the last time, he says, take on your rest. It's time we got to go. But in this whole process, he kept praying, Father, if it's possible, Take this cup away. So can you imagine? He's seeing everything that's going to happen to him. Can you imagine somebody just beating you, flogging you, tearing your flesh from your body with a whip, and then get you to carry your cross? Then after they done, you know, and they took him in. See, a lot of times we don't think about the process of what happened. I was thinking about this the other day as I was praying. They brought Jesus in, once they decided to crucify him, they brought him in in front of the Roman guards, and they blindfolded him. And then they started hitting him with a reed, they call it. But this is like a stick. So they were hitting him across the head, talking about prophesy, uh, tell us, uh, 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 or they would hit him and bow, they said, to the king uh, of the Jews. Hail, king of the Jews. They were mocking him. And then the Bible says and they put a crown of thorns on his head. I mean, you think about that. I mean, have you ever got anything stuck in your finger, a thorn, anything? Can you imagine them putting a crown of thorns in your head and pressing them down in your head? So all this stuff Jesus is seeing that's going to happen to him, that's why the Bible says he's praying with great, that, that his sweat became like great drops of blood because of the stress about what he's about to go through in a human body. This is real pain. This is not something that's not going to happen. And so, but he's determined to obey God. Now, think about Saul. Think about Adam. Adam wasn't even under no threat, and he didn't obey God. God told him, to, don't eat from the tree. Him and Eve, all it took was the devil tricking them, and they did it, right? So here Jesus is under threat of death, crucifixion, yet he obeys God to the point of death. This is why for all of us, we have to be willing, no matter what it is that's going on. Let's say, for instance, um, you have a career you want to do. Let's say. And let's say for whatever the reasons are, every time you try to get going, it won't ever work. It won't, it just don't, it won't seem to happen. But maybe you could keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing. But for whatever reason, you are comfortable that mm, you don't have God's favor on this. You got to die. You know, you got to be willing to say, okay, you know what? As much as I think this is something I want to do, as much as I think this is something I have the ability to do, as much as I think this is something that I'm capable of doing, 
I must personally let it go. I must be willing to say, God, if this is your will, I am willing to let it go. That's what Jesus, but Jesus let go his life. Yeah, man. I mean, and so the Bible then tells us, look at verse 9. Then it says, wherefore, because of that, and it makes sense to me, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Okay? So now we see then why. Why? Go back to verse 8. It says, being found. Now remember, this is God's son now. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So in other words, the father sees the son come down. The son was with God in the beginning, okay? Even had he decided, I, I, I must presume, I don't know how this would have went, but let's, let's presume he had decided, I don't want to go through with this. Well, I mean, what could God do to him? He has never sinned. Now, one could argue, well, he sinned because he didn't do what God wanted him to do. But it was a decision he got to make. It was a choice he could make. He chose to go forward with it. And he chose to be obedient unto death. I don't know what that looks like if he had not. I don't even know. All I know is this. He chose to go forward. And because of that, God has watched his son do what? Be right here in whatever this form is. Watch him descend, and he's a baby, Watch him grow up into a young man. Watch him become a grown man. Watch him minister to people and humble himself the whole time, not misuse his power. And then what? Allow himself to be tortured by these same creatures he created. And then he died. And the Bible says because of that, makes sense to me. The Bible says in verse 9, wherefore, God also have highly exalted him. You know, see, people are always looking for the exaltation without the cross. This is why it's so important for us to understand the cross. If we understand the cross, God's like, look, if you will just die, let me come live in you. I will exalt you in due season. And the exaltation then doesn't matter anymore because you dead, now it don't matter. See, when it mattered, that's why God don't do it. Because now, if, he, if it's happening, I'd be I'd very cautious if it was God. I'd be very, if, if a person is like very flamboyant and very whatever, and they make themselves a big rep and all that stuff, and they seem to be out there like that, I would be very concerned that that's nothing but the power of the enemy working behind them. False apostles, false teachers, etc. Because it's not the way of the cross. It's not the way God does things. It's not the way Christ did it. So we have to be able to focus to know that, look, God wants you to humble yourself because when it's all over, he's always trying to exalt Jesus. I mean, because he's the only one who did this. I mean, Jesus is the only one who was obedient unto death, even the cross. So God is now saying, but he says this is what led to Jesus' exaltation. This is why people have to understand. There's no way to the Father but Jesus. This is why. This is what makes it easier for us to explain to people why Jesus is the only way. I mean, what, what, what would God say? Think about it like this. What should Jesus say if he did all of that he did and was obedient unto death, and then God said, great, thanks for making another way. Yeah, yeah, thanks for one more way. So now we have five ways to God. 
Yeah, we can be go through Harry Krishna, or we can go through this one, or we can go through that one, or we can go through this one, or we can go through Christianity. No, there's only one way. The one man who was with God in the beginning in the form of God became a man, humbled himself like no other person will ever humble themselves, became obedient all the way to the point that he allowed his life to be taken away. And when it's all over. And see, when the Bible talks about it in Isaiah, let me flip over there right quick. It says, you know, who's going to declare his judgment? You know, who's going to declare his day? And, and um, let, let, me, let me read it to you here. Um, this is what it says in, um, I'm now in Isaiah uh, chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. And it's talking about um, the Lord. And in verse 8, Isaiah 53, verse 8, this is what it says. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. So in other words, God is saying to us here, he was taken from prison and judgment. He wasn't given any kind of real trial. Who's going to declare his life? Where's his generation? Where's his family? Where's his offspring? He says he was cut off out of the land of the living, but not because of himself, but for God's people. Then when you get into chapter 54, and see, this is where we start learning where all these other things come in. The barrenness of Sarah, the barrenness of Rachel, and all of these different people throughout. And then all of a sudden, God gives them a baby. He was trying to get you to see. Jesus never married. He wasn't married. He didn't have any family. He had no children like that. He had, who was going to declare his generation? Well, just like Rachel, just like Sarah, just like all of a sudden, look at what it says in uh, Isaiah Chapter 54, I'm going to read verse 1 through 3. Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Enlarge the place of thy tent and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. Spare not. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. So God tells Jesus, that's, he's talking about Jesus, that when he, he died by himself, no offspring, never had a wife or family or nothing like that, who would declare the generation of Jesus? You know, I mean, all, most of us have family. You know, people can come in, I'm a this, I'm a white, I'm that. You pass it down. Who's going to do that for Jesus? All of a sudden, God says, sing forth, O barren. All of a sudden, breaking forth everywhere are children of God. All what? With Jesus as our brother and as our elder, who's, we've come out from what? Being birthed in Christ. Is that crazy? That is crazy. And billions and billions and billions of people call on the name of Jesus and have as their, their Savior. 
all out of him being obedient to God and dying. And now we see how all these other things happen as it relates to Rachel and Sarah and all of that. So now he says this in verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So we see then that Paul ends by telling us that what's going to happen because of all this, that there is coming a day. And that's what Jesus said, that one day is coming where everyone in the grave is going to hear his voice and will have to rise. Just like when Lazarus died and Jesus called him back, he says that everyone, and this is another thing that's so phenomenal to people. So you're saying the people been dead for a thousand years, they going to come? Yeah, yeah. That's what, exactly what we're saying. And God says, every one of them, no matter where you died, how you died, whatever happened, God is going to put all that back there. You coming. And when you come, you are going to bow your knee. People who have said Jesus isn't God, people who cuss Jesus, people who said all kind of crazy stuff about him, they will be standing there in front of Jesus, trembling, knowing that it's on. And it's too late for you to change because it's over. And that one, these opportunities that you had to confess him as Christ and to come forth and to be saved, you lost them. And now this very man stands as your judge. And like Jesus said, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what he said. And so I, I, I want to, 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 to focus on this last scripture um, that says, um, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Because many times people will focus on that verse and not realize that he's not saying, like, let's go off and I'm going to work out my own salvation. I do what I got to do. This means walk out, walk it out. He's saying, look, with everything I've just told you, I need you to do what? Walk out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You ought to be afraid. You should be scared. You should be trembling about it. People are like, I ain't worrying about that. Okay. You better make sure that you are walking correctly before God and that you will humble yourself. You're not doing stuff out of strife or vainglory. You're not putting yourself above other people. You are walking this thing out. He says, work it out with fear and trembling. You should be concerned about what you're doing. He says, because it's God working in you both to do his pleasure and his goodwill. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to stop there tonight.